0: Hi and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast <clears throat> this is Brad Constantine I guess I don't need to keep saying my name because huh? it's an in introduction every time what I've been tempted to say is hi I'm Brad Constantine and you're not from Chevy Chase Saturday Night Live sketch all right not very funny all right uh, today's discussion is going to be on Jacob chapter four uh, in the Book of Mormon so let's get into this um Verse 1, Now behold, it came to pass that I, Jacob, having ministered much unto my people in word, and I cannot write but a few of my words, or but a little of my words, because of the difficulty of engraving our words upon plates, and we know that the things which we write upon plates must remain. Because it was so difficult to engrave upon the plates, the writers and editors made sure that every word was exactly the right word, and every story and principle and doctrine would be for our benefit, so we can feel confident as we read the Book of Mormon that everything in here is for us verse 2 but whatsoever things we write upon anything save it be upon plates must perish and vanish away but we can write a few words upon plates which will give our children and also our beloved brethren meaning the lamanites a small degree of knowledge concerning us or concerning their fathers now in this thing we do rejoice and we labor diligently to engrave in these words upon plates hoping that our beloved brethren and our children will receive them with thankful hearts and look upon these that They may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt concerning their first parents. This could be Adam and Eve, but probably not. This refers to any parents who precede us. Our parents want us to be better than they were. He's probably here referring to Lehi and their families. Verse 4, For for this intent have we written these things that they may know that we knew of Christ. In other words, the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to testify of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. The preeminent duty of a prophet is to bear witness of Jesus Christ, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's from Joseph Smith. Verse five, behold, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name. And also, we worship the Father in His name. And for this intent, we keep the law of Moses. Since they kept the law of Moses, this is why it is probable that this day that Jacob speaks in the temple is the day of atonement, it pointing our souls to Him. The law of Moses was the type, Jesus the anti type. He was that toward which they looked, toward which all creation looked and waited. The law was the symbol, Jesus the ultimate result, or the ultimate reality toward which it pointed. The law was the means, Jesus the end. These simple but pertinent verities are all but lost in the Bible. Particularly in the Old Testament, only through the clarifying and illuminating lenses of the Book of Mormon do we come to know that the law was anything more than a schoolmaster or teaching device. The law of Moses, including the intricate system of animal sacrifices, was the prophecy. Jesus was the grand fulfillment of the prophecy. As Nephi said, My soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ, For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. After having explained the need for the great and last sacrifice of the Son of God, Amulek said, This is the whole meaning of the law of Moses, every wit pointing to that great and last sacrifice. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. And that's from doctrinal commentary of the Book of Mormon. Continuing uh, verse 5. And for this cause, it is sanctified. Sanctification is a result of single-minded obedience, a blessing known only to those who have made their souls as an offering unto him. Unto us for righteousness, just as our conformity to gospel standards, while dwelling as lowly mortals, apart from our maker, prepares us to return to his presence with an inheritance of immortal glory. So the Mosaic standards prepared the chosen of Israel to believe and obey that gospel by conformity to which eternal life is won. And that's from Bruce R. to gain the celestial kingdom, the Lord says, "Ye must be sanctified through the law, which I have given unto you, even the law of Christ, which law is the fullness of the gospel. The revealed word specifies that those who obtain celestial glory must be able to abide the law of the celestial kingdom. In other words, salvation in the celestial kingdom will come to all who are able to live the full law of Christ, even though they did not have opportunity so to do in the course of a mortal probation. Thus all those who kept the law of Moses, who lived the law of the preparatory gospel to the full, thus establishing that they were able to live the Lord's law, will in due course gain a celestial inheritance. And again, that was Bruce R. McConkie. Continuing verse 5, Even as it was accounted unto Abraham in the wilderness to be obedient unto the commands of God in offering up his son Isaac, which is a similitude of God and his only begotten son. The Old Testament tells us what happened, but the Book of Mormon tells us why. Even though the law of Moses was a lesser law, a preparatory gospel, the Nephites, knowing full well of the law and its purpose, thought not, not to sit in judgment upon it or their God. They obeyed it and it was accounted unto them for righteousness. And again that was doctrinal commentary of the Book of Mormon. Verse six. Wherefore we search the prophets, in other words, the books of the Old Testament, and we have many revelations, meaning currently, and the spirit of prophecy, and having all these witnesses we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken. Insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. A record will probably come forth telling of these miracles where trees obey, or mountains move, or waves are controlled. Nevertheless, the Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. God's work and glory is to transform a meager mortal into a glorious celestial being. That's from Millett and McConkie. Continuing verse 8, How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him, and it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. Miller Maxwell said, The perspective yielding truths of the restoration did not come by research, debate, or discussion, nor by communiques from councils. Direct divine revelation was required, and precisely for the reasons Jacob gave, Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord, quoting verse 8. We cannot determine by using radio telescopes, for instance, that there is a plan of salvation operating in the universe. Helpful as radio telescopes are for astrophysical purposes, salvational truths are obtainable only by revelation. The faith-yielding truths flowing from the miraculous miracle, we come in rich abundance have come in rich abundance in good measure like a harvest basket whose contents are pressed down and shaken together and running over. In fact, as Elder Holland has pointed out, more books or pages of scripture have come to us through Joseph Smith than any other prophet, more even than from Moses, Luke, Paul, and Mormon combined. Many more scriptural writings will yet come to us, including those of Enoch, all of the writings of the Apostle John, the records of the lost tribes of Israel, and the approximately two-thirds of the Book of Mormon plates that were sealed. Today we carry convenient quadruple combinations of the scriptures, but one day, since, our, since more scriptures are coming, we may need to pull little red wagons brimful with books. Now it's from Elder Holland. Verse 9, For behold, by the power of his word, man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power and of his word. Wherefore, if God being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created, Oh, then, why not able to command the earth or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? God, Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. Elder Packer said, Some among us would rather criticize the Lord and his church than concentrate on the problems. That is a symptom of impenitence. Follow the brethren. If you don't understand a problem or a position of the church, restrain your tongue. Check the mode in your own eye before you criticize. There is nothing in your lives that will destroy you if you will follow the brethren. Enough evil doesn't exist in the world, even if it were brought together and focused on you, to destroy you, except you consent to it. That was from Elder Packer. Uh, Harold B. Lee said, Mark well those who speak evil of the Lord's anointed, for they speak from impure hearts. Only the pure in heart see the God or the divine in man and accept our leaders and accept them as prophets of the living God. I want to bear you my testimony that the experience I have had has taught me that those who criticize the leaders of this church are showing signs of a spiritual sickness, which unless curbed will bring about eventually spiritual death. I want to bear my testimony as well that those who in public seek by their criticism to belittle our leaders or bring them into disrepute will bring upon themselves more hurt than upon those whom they seek thus to malign. I have watched over the years and I have read of the history of many of those who fell away from this church. And I want to bear testimony that no apostate who ever left this church ever prospered as an influence in his community thereafter. Elder Elder Maxwell said, church members will live in this wheat and tares situation until the millennium. Some real tares even masquerade as wheat, including the, the few eager individuals who lecture the rest of us about church doctrines in which they no longer believe. They criticize the use of church resources to which they no longer contribute. They condescendingly seek to counsel the brethren whom they no longer sustain. Confrontive except of themselves, of course, they leave the church, but they cannot leave the church alone. Continuing verse 10, For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement. You are called to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to return. You must have been with him before if he buys you back again after the fall. That was Hugh Nibley. Remember that reconciliation means to return and to sit down again because you've sat there before. Christ, his only begotten son, and ye ye may obtain a resurrection, a glorious resurrection, entitling you to exaltation in the celestial kingdom, according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ, and be presented as the first fruits of Christ unto God. In other words, a celestial resurrection. This phrase appears to mean that the first fruits of Christ is a description of those souls who have been consecrated and dedicated to his service and who thereby qualify for the highest resurrection and a place in the celestial world. Continuing verse 11, having faith and obtained a good hope of glory in him before he manifesteth himself in the flesh. And now, beloved, marvel not that I tell you these things, for why not speak of the atonement of Christ and attain to a perfect knowledge of him, as to attain to the knowledge of a resurrection and the world to come? Ella McConkie said, The doctrine of the atonement embraces, sustains, support, and gives life and force to all other gospel doctrines. It is the foundation upon which all truth rests, and all things grow out of it, and come because of it. Indeed, the atonement is the gospel. Verse 13 Behold, my brethren! He that prophesieth, let him prophesy to the understanding of men. For the Spirit speaketh the truth, and lieth not. Wherefore, it speaketh the things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore, these things are manifested unto us plainly for the salvation of our souls. But behold, we are not witnesses alone in these things. For God also spake them unto prophets of old. But behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness. Elder McConkie said, Those who preach by the power of the Holy Ghost use the Scriptures as their basic source of knowledge and doctrine. They begin with what the Lord has before revealed to other inspired men, but it is the practice of the Lord to give added knowledge to those upon whose hearts the true meaning and intents of the Scriptures have been impressed. Many great doctrinal revelations come to those who preach from the Scriptures. When they are in tune with the infinite, the Lord lets them know first the full and complete meaning of the scriptures they are expounding. And then he oft times expands their views so that new truths flood in upon them. And they learn added things that those who do not follow such a course can never know. We reduce the realm of the unknown not by wandering in it, but rather by feasting on and expanding our knowledge of that which God has already revealed. That was from Millet McConkie. Continuing verse 14 and killed the prophets and sought for things that they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark?" Now this expression uh, explains um, Joseph William McConkie said that the phenomenon of looking beyond the mark, which was prevalent among the Jewish intellectuals, he said, so rigid did the literal and ceremonial become that righteousness was overshadowed by legalism and salvation became the reward for outward conformity. Phariseeism and Scholasticism ruled supreme. God Himself was said to spend three hours a day in the study of law. All liberty of thought was abrogated. All Gentile learning was forbidden. No communion was allowed with the human intellect outside the Pharisaic pale. So there was a lot of uh, things that they had to do back in the day. Elder, Ma- Elder Maxwell says Jacob speaks of ancient Judah as having rejected the words of its prophets, intellectual embroidery seems to have been preferred to the whole clothing of the gospel, the frills to the fabric. In fact, one can even surmise that complexity was preferred over plainness by some because in conceptual complexity, there might somehow be escape or excuse for non-compliance and for failure. In any event, this incredible blindness which led to the rejection of those truths spoken by prophets and which prevented the recognition of Jesus for who he was, according to Jacob, came by looking beyond the mark. Those who look beyond plainness, beyond the prophets, beyond Christ, and beyond his simple teachings, waited in vain then as they will wait in vain now. For only only the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us of things as they really are and as they really will be. There is more realism in the revelations than in, realm, than in reams of secular research, for secularism is congenitally short-sighted. Without revelation and its absolute anchors, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would also follow the fads of the day, as some churches have done. But as Samuel Callan warned, the Church that weds itself to the culture of the day will be a widow within each succeeding age. This is but one of the marks of the true and living Church. It has spared the fruits of fadism. Hugh Nimbly contrasts the Jews' interest in difficult scripture with the lack of interest prevalent among the Latter-day Saints. This scathing commentary is too insightful to be left out of this discussion. He said, yet Joseph Smith commends there the Jews' intellectual efforts as a corrective to the Latter-day Saints, who lean too far uh, in the other direction, giving their young people an old awards for zeal alone, zeal without knowledge for sitting in endless meetings, for dedicated conformity and unlimited capacity for suffering boredom. We think it more commendable to get up at 5 a.m. to write a bad book than to get up at 9 o'clock to write a good one. That is pure zeal that tends to breed a race of insufferable self-righteous prigs and barren minds. One has only to consider the present outpouring of inspirational books in the church that bring little new in the way of knowledge. Truisms and platitudes, kish, and cliches have become our everyday diet. The prophet would never settle for that. I advise all to go on to perfection and search deeper and deeper into the mysteries of godliness. It has always been my providence to dig up hidden mysteries, new things for my hearers. It actually happens at the BYU, and that not rarely, that students come to a teacher, usually at the beginning of a term, with the sincere request that he refrain from teaching them anything new. They have no desire, they explain, to hear what they do not know already. I cannot imagine that happening at any other school, but maybe it does, unless we go on to new uh, other new things, we are stifling our powers. That was Hugh Nibley from approaching Zion. Continuing verse 14, they must needs fall, for God hath taken away his plainness from them and delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it that they may stumble. And now I, Jacob, am led by the Spirit unto, unto prophesying, for I proceed by the workings of the Spirit which is in me, That by the stumbling of the Jews, they will reject the stone, Jesus Christ, upon which they might build and have safe foundation. Tradition holds that at the time of the construction of the second temple, the builder rejected and discarded a chief cornerstone by mistake. Uh, Verse 16, but behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build it? Build upon it that it may become the head of their corner. Chapters 5 through 7 are going to actually answer this question with the allegory of the olive tree and the explanation. Verse 18, Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. So he's going to tell them in the next chapter here what he's talking about. Uh, It is not work that kills men, it is worry Work is healthy, you can hardly put more upon a man than he can bear. Worry is is rust upon the blade. Fear secretes acids, but love and trust are sweet juices. Henry Ward Beecher quoted in You and Your Marriage by Hugh Hugh Brown, he said, uh, I'm sorry, that was from uh, Hubie Brown's book. He says, uh, going on, he says, We are indoctrinated that somehow we should always be instantly emotionally comfortable. When that is not so, some become anxious and, are too frequently, and all too frequently seek relief from counseling, from analysis, and even from medication. It was meant to be that life would be a challenge. To suffer some anxiety, some depression, some disappointment, even some failure is normal. Teach our members that if they have a good miserable day once in a while or several in a row to stand steady and face them. Things will straighten out. And that was Boyd Packer. Harriet Lerner, Ph.D., said when we're too anxious, we won't be able to gather new information, think clearly about the problem, explore our options, give calm and clear feedback to others and find creative solutions that consider the needs of all. And fear can run amok, flooding our system with adrenaline and hijacking our neocortex, the thinking part of the brain. Usually... Anxiety is a mean trickster. It signals you to pay attention, but it also turns your brain to oatmeal, narrows and rigidifies your focus, and obscures the real issues from view. Anxiety tricks you out of the now as you obsessively replay and regret past and worry about the future. It tricks you into losing sight of your competence and your capacity for love, creativity, and joy. Anxiety interferes with self-regard and self-respect. It can dig a big negative groove in your brain and make it impossible for you to hang on to a positive thought for more than five seconds. It can affect your body in ways that can feel crippling. When you're anxious, doom and gloom fantasies tend to permeate your day and reach a fever pitch when you're lying in bed. Your anxious mind will hook onto some dire, worst case scenario. These thoughts grip you in a way that accomplishes nothing except to make you feel miserable and powerless. And that was from a book called Fear and Other Uninvited Guests. I bear testimony of the truth of the gospel that, uh, that as we um, rely upon our Savior who is the stone of Israel, and uh, rely upon his merits, uh, then we will and, and rely on the atonement of Jesus Christ that we can be saved in his kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.